This is Jeff Cronoweth, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how you doing? Hey, Ben, I'm doing, you know what I'm doing. Doing how sheltering in place, <laughs> sheltering, quarantining, all of the above. How about yourself? I am also quite sheltered in place uh, here in Sherman Oaks, California, and uh, uh, as always, looking at you on uh, the Zoom screen as we all are, and uh, could not be more excited about today's interview. Oh, good! I'm 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 glad you're excited about it. I know nothing about this interview because I, I wasn't there. Uh, the interview is with Jeff Cronenwith, oh. who, besides Larry Fong and Sal Totino, probably shot every music video you ever loved in the in the 90s, mostly. Uh, worked a lot with Mark uh, Romanek, worked a lot with David Fincher, and then he shot a little movie you might have heard of called Fight Club. Yes. I, I, I really hope that you, you spend some good time talking about Fight Club, because uh, you could talk about Fight Club for, for two hours and it wouldn't be enough for me. He gives us some really good inside information about Fight Club and also uh, his new TV series, Tales from the Loop, oh, which yeah. is currently streaming on Amazon. And if you haven't seen it, uh, definitely worth checking out. Cool science fiction uh, mystery show. Really, really cool and absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. Shot by him, directed by uh, his frequent partner in crime, Mark Romanek. Oh, all right. Mark Romanek to me was like one of those uh, very uh, Sphinx-like music video directors. He did like the closer video for Nine Inch Nails. Oh, sure. And a, and a bunch of other. One of my favorite Nine Inch Nails videos uh, and, and one of my favorite music videos, period, which Jeff shot and we talk about it at some length, is the Nine Inch Nails video uh, for the song The Perfect Drug, which is gorgeous. Look it up. Check it out. We should put it in the show notes. He, he's really, I think, a, a visionary cinematographer. He's worked with Fincher a number of times. Uh, he's done, you know, some amazing work and we talk about a lot of it. I, I, it's one of those things where we ran out of time, so we couldn't talk about as much as I wanted to, but we still have a pretty nice long interview. So nice. Fantastic. I really look forward to, uh, to giving it a listen. So what do you want to talk about in our George Foyt close focus segment? <laughs> uh, I have to let our audience know we were just talking off mic about this. I've been spending all week trying to figure out what we could talk about in this segment that is not COVID-19 related. And I'm coming up dry because it's really just everything that's going on in the world. I, th I think we can scooch around it a little. Maybe we can uh, bring up something that's tangential to COVID-19. Tangential? Or, yeah, that's the yes. word. Yes. Or is it uh, or is it just plain old? COVID-19 related. Well, our producer, Alana Cody, recommended a deadline article to us that was about opening up Hollywood and how we uh, go back to, uh, you know, we're it's going to be a minute before we're back to business as usual. But how do we go back to business at all? And, you know, I can tell you, you know, my wife is a, a story producer on House Hunters and they ain't shooting that show anymore and uh pretty much nothing is being shot right now so that's true uh in order for us to power back up we have to you know we don't just flip a switch and turn society back on and go back to doing things the way that we did or a giant you know multi-million uh people would die of COVID 19. so what is the safe way what are the safe ways that people are saying we can go back to work and uh, and you've read this article, so um, I've I've heard a little bit about this in discussion. But uh, 
what do you think is uh, is a big takeaway that we should all be paying attention to? For- well, I mean, I think it, there are going to be insurance implications and it's going to be probably worked into production insurance. I think that onset medics are going to have to have test kits available for COVID-19. Thermometers. I think that everyone is going to have to have their temperature taken when they show up at work. The problem is that COVID-19 can be asymptomatic entirely. So you could have it and not know you had it. Or it could be asymptomatic for up to two weeks before it shows any symptoms, but you're still contagious. So uh, checking your temperature is only one metric by which you could figure out if somebody has it. Okay, so, uh, so think, how do how do actors then protect each other from scenes? And you which- get test, you get tested. Mm-hmm. I think that you're, there's going to have to be widespread testing. Honestly, I think we have to look into how the porn industry handles it with venereal disease, uh, and we're all going to have to kind of work with protocols like that because when you're on a film set it's hot it's sweaty everyone's kind of around each other and up in each other's space sometimes you're crammed into a corner with a monitor and six people looking at it like it's <laughs> the backseat of a car it, yeah the trunk. i mean yeah. literally yeah. yeah there was there's a scene in alien raiders where uh walt lloyd and i were literally in the back of an suv and the camera was uh in the front seat and and we were just hunched down hunkered down in the back of that suv the whole time Stuff like that, you might just not be able to do stuff like that. I do think that there are tests on the way that can tell you whether or not you have the disease within 15 minutes of a mouth or a nose swab. And, you know, maybe that's something you have to do every day. You know, every day you're on the shoot. At craft services, food is going to have to be individually wrapped. You're not going to want like a plate of cookies or a plate of vegetables that someone else could have put their germ laden fingers into that you then pick up and get the disease from. Like there's going to be a lot of stuff like that, a lot of individually wrapped, uh, carefully separated products that that we can all kind of get our hands on. You're not going to ha- be like, hey, it's late in the day. Let's order pizza. Hey, everyone, grab a slice. It, it's going to be a little bit more uh, more regimented than that. It sounds like a sounds like a movie. Actually, it sounds like we're heading into <laughs> we're heading into the uh, the quarantine of work. We're heading into uh, it is yeah. for these safety meetings. Don't stand too close. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a giant drag. And probably, my guess is, probably everyone behind the scenes will be wearing a a face mask of some kind. And I think masks and gloves and stuff like that are just going to be how we go about doing business. There's just no, I don't know how else you can do it. But I think that it's going to be impossible until testing is something that could just happen remotely on site anywhere. And I know that it's possible when you go to the doctor, if you think you have the flu, they can give you a like a nose swab and they have a little box that they put your swab in that tells you whether or not you have influenza within five minutes. So they just need to create that the version of that for COVID-19. And it has to be readily available. It has to be readily available and inexpensive enough that a set medic could just have it. And set medic sounds like, you know, usually that I won't say it's a cush job, but usually it's a it's an uneventful job unless somebody really hurts themselves or something. But you have to have them on sets, but smaller sets don't have them. I bet you smaller sets are going to be required to have medics. I think you're right. Anyway, I mean, I, I, I think it's actually good to read this article on Deadline and we can include the link in our show notes to kind of look at what people are already kind of saying like, okay, how do we open up? How, how can we go back to work? Because honestly, we all have to go back to work. I mean, I don't know about you. I have to go back to work. You got that cush corporate job. <laughs> Wait a minute. Not exactly. 
<laughs> uh, yes, I've been I've been talking to people out there, and the uh, the list of uh, those that have been furloughed from their 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 company job all over this country is uh, incredible. And I think that um, you know I, I was actually I'm involved in this uh, group of uh, small business owners, and we communicate every week. And we have a, a number of advisors who, who who talk to us, and I'll tell you that the last meeting they were like, if you don't have a 12 month plan right now for pivoting your business or or doing something different or how you're going to survive for a year in these sort of conditions, you'd better start making plans because, uh, yeah. because really if the business community is starting to talk like that, then it doesn't really matter what our government is saying that there's, um, there's a good chance that we're going to be disrupted in a really significant way for a long time to come. Well, for sure. And, you know, you and I here in California, currently the stay at home order is through the middle of May, which is basically a month from now, but it could, it could end up being longer. <laughs> You know, like it's not going to be shorter and it could end up being till June. It could end up being till July. That that would be pretty catastrophic, but it could happen. And it's what might have to happen to end the spread of the disease. It just goes to show how something that literally everybody in the epidemiological profession has been saying, you know, screaming for the last 50 years could happen that when it happened, we just were really unprepared. I watched an animation, probably shouldn't have watched it, uh, right before going to bed last night that someone had mm. done, which essentially took all the particles that leave your body, leave your mouth, just from having a, a normal volume level conversation at, at uh -huh. any given time, and then made all of them on a computer screen about the size of like a penny. So you could see like just how much particulate matter is flying out of your mouth, not just when you say P's or S's or anything like that, but just oh, having this, a conversation. This is the premise of the movie Gattaca. <laughs> No, I don't think it's the. It wasn't really. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, it's that you're shedding cells all day. Yes, long, you're, so you're constantly your your genetic information is flying out there. But yeah. but in this animation, it was like, oh, no wonder people say six feet because it looked like a it looked like a fire hose, a fire hose of particulate matter flying out of your mouth with every single word. That is, you know, microscopic and invisible. We can't see it, but that's what's happening when you're talking. Well, you know where six feet comes from, by the way. No. Airlines. Ooh, really? Air airlines were seeing if somebody was sick on an airplane, how far away were the people who weren't getting sick? Six feet. And it was Got six me. feet. All right. Well, hey. And there are questions about whether or not that actually applies to this. Let's get to the fight club. <laughs> let's get let's get to the yeah, interview. Yeah, enough, enough of this gloom and doom. We'll get back to the gloom and doom after the interview with Jeff Cronenwith. But for now, here's Jeff Cronenwith. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I am recording uh, remotely on Zoom with Jeff Cronenweth, who's one of the cinematographers we've been hoping to get on here one day for a long time. Thank you so much for uh, for virtually being uh, interviewed by us. Happy to be here. I always start off, and I, I mean, like, your career is fascinating and amazing to me, and I, I can't wait to, to dig into it. But the first question I always like to ask is kind of a, a fundamental question about what you see when you read a script as a cinematographer. Uh, one, uh, a friend of mine put it in my head a long time ago that some DPs see the script and they imagine the lighting. Sometimes they see the composition. Would you say that you are one or the other? Or, and you're, feel free to reject the basic premise of my question, too. No, I, it's a great question. I think that when I first read a script, I'm trying to really absorb the story and get into the story. Because at this point, I haven't had an opportunity to speak to the director usually. 
sometimes you, you meet first and then read the script, but that's very rare. Usually you get sent the script. Uh, you know what the director's body of work is, and you know some of the players that might be around it already. So you want to, for me, I want to indulge myself in the script and get caught up in the story. You know, it's it's inevitable that you see images as you're reading it. That's that's what I do. That's what I bring most to it. And so I, I try to store those images because, you know, there could be completely different perspectives or my point of view could change once I've had an opportunity to to have you know a conversation with the director and get into his head and then see the the locations and see the sets and see the direction that this is all going to go and and then discover what the visual language is for that particular story and then out of that comes pace and tempo and camera movement and and where and when we best can utilize it you know I've never been one to showboat more than necessary. I'm all about, you know, supporting the story and bringing visuals that make that experience better. So it always starts with a story for me. Uh, we, we tend to do like a deep dive into somebody's genesis into becoming a cinematographer and when it first occurred to them to do it. But I think with you, it's impossible to discuss that without talking about your father, Jordan Cronenworth, who uh, famously shot movies like Blade Runner and actually one of my personal favorites, Buckaroo Banzai. What did you see it as a family business? Did you know early on that it was something you wanted to do, or did you arrive at it on your own? I knew this. I visited the set quite a bit as a kid, all through my teen years and and up into the beginning of college. And I knew that I love the camaraderie and I love the collaboration. And I really felt like I wanted to do something in in, in the world. I did in that world. I just didn't know what it was going to be. You know, I mm-hmm. loved the idea of every morning going out to uh, to fight a war, more or less, and then tackling all the uh, obstacles that come up on every day in production, and then going back and celebrating or mourning <laughs> your day's work. And so I, I really like loved that family mentality about a common goal, and it's always uh, trying to beat those obstacles. And then adding the creativity and photography into it came later, but I, I wanted to be part of that. And so as I got older, I paid more attention to my dad's work and cinematography in the camera department at first. You know, to aspire to to be a cinematographer is one thing, but to actually accomplishment is a long road. So I took a, a, a different path and started like in the, in the craftsman sense and worked my way through the camera department all the way up to uh, becoming a cinematographer. Uh, it was probably when I was in high school that I started considering that as, as a career choice. And then uh, I started a, a junior college because all through high school, uh, school was the least important thing to me. Just getting by was important. <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather uh, shoot my own little films, which we had been doing on Super 8, or play sports or do something else. But once I graduated, I realized that I really wanted to go to the University of Southern California Film School. And I hadn't put myself in a very good position to get into it yet. Uh, you know, the competition now is much vaster than it was when I when I went in, in 1980. But it still was, it was a much smaller school then, and so the competition was extremely high. So I decided that I wanted to go and went to a junior college and uh, for the first time in my life made the, made the dean's list, got straight A's because oh, wow. I actually had a goal now and it meant something. But in the midst of my college, uh, junior college, um, an opportunity came along. My dad was starting Blade Runner and an opportunity came along to get into the union, but not on Blade Runner. There was a slight chance that they would hire a loader on Blade Runner, but he didn't think that it was a guarantee. 
mm -hmm. there was a commercial company in Hollywood that was willing to make me a staff loader because they had their staff loader was moving on. And if I stayed there, chances are that an opening would come about in the, in the union. And in those days, it was very difficult to get in and you couldn't work without being in. There was no non-union work. And if I wanted to work parallel with my father, then I had to be part of the IA. So I quit school, went and worked at a company called uh, Filmfare, which was, uh, had four other uh, satellite companies part of it and did commercials, predominantly commercials. <laughs> Of course, the loader position did, in fact, open up on Blade Runner. And uh, a good friend of mine, who then later became a, a cinematographer, ASC member, took that job and, and completed the movie. But I was 19 years old, and I was a young 19. And that set was uh, extremely complicated and difficult and had politics mm. and, and so many nights. And uh, I think it would I mean, as much as I would love now to have been on the set the whole time, I'm not sure I could have handled it at that age with everything. So I went and worked at the at film fair, got into the IA, went and visited Blade Runner set on the Warner Brothers lot as much as I could, and then uh, went and applied to USC and got in. I went to film school. Yeah, I got in, did my two years of, uh, of cinema school at USC, graduated, and then right away started working uh, with my dad and other cinematographers. And movies, commercials, and music videos were not really started yet another couple of years before they started get going the funny thing is it's everybody asks about my father and of course they should because he's the most gifted of all of us but my <laughs> grandfather his father won the last oscar they gave out for portrait photography so what? There to, yeah so there used to be a category uh, because unlike today where they stand on set next to us to get the, the publicity stills, you know, they had big flash cameras and large format and they needed their own sets. And so they would build and direct the talent and all the publicity, you know, that was the only source of publicity that would come. And so there was an Oscar category for that. And he won the last one for a shot of uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. Wow. So you're third generation. And my grandmother was a Ziegfeld Folly dance girl. Whoa. That's amazing. And I have her silver nitrate screen test still. Really? Wow. Have you Hidden transferred away it? In a fireproof box. I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, 30 years ago, I transferred it. But yeah, it's, it's quite awesome. So, uh, so obviously there was no, uh, like going into show business was kind of de rigueur for you. Like for a lot of people going into show business is something that, you know, parents would, you know, uh, advise against cause it's risky, but you were third generation or was there a fourth generation Were were their parents in uh, vaudeville? They apparently, uh, my grandfather's father had a camera shop in Pennsylvania, a store. So I, I have yet to be able to validate that, but <laughs> that's, that's the rumor. Well, let me ask you this. So you were already in the union and then you went to film school and, and I'm assuming that you had decided that cinematography was the track you wanted to be on at that point, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So what was the value that you got out of film school that you wouldn't have gotten by being on set? Because there's always that argument of like you could take those years and just work or you could go to film school. What, what was the value in film school for you? Well, you have to look at what the time was, you know, it's twofold for me. One, I was still very young. I'm 19 years old at, the, at this time. And so I wanted to grow up and I wanted the college experience. And my father wanted me to go to college and have that experience. And so that was not ever a, a non-consideration. 
but you couldn't see movies like you can now. There was no internet access and there was no pay-per-view or bring up. So if you wanted to get a proper education and see the classic movies, you could randomly catch one somewhere at an old theater in Hollywood, or you could go to film school and you could watch the litany of, of the library that they have mm-hmm. and, and, and the prominent movies and, and what, what you get out of those and why those filmmakers made the movies the way they did. And then, and then we had to make films. You know, that was one of the bonuses about USC is that you actually made films in, in every segment of your curriculum there. And so there was an on-hands part that was, you know, extremely important to, to get and grasp. And then later when I was working, you know, I still, I had that background behind me. I was much farther ahead of the curve creatively and understanding the whole picture as opposed to just whatever my job might have been on set. Now, if you want to talk about why didn't I come out shooting out of school versus working my way through up, that, that's, a, that's a legitimate discussion because I don't know that there is a better way. I had two of my classmates at USC, Robert Brinkman and John Schwartzman, both very successful cinematographers, and we went different paths. Um, they came out of film school and started shooting industrial films and some really early rudimentary music videos. I went the, the craftsman's way and I went and came, became a loader, did very big you know, Hollywood movies and got to watch professionals uh, top of their game solve those same problems as opposed to having to discover them myself. Mm-hmm. So by the time John was shooting prominent movies, I had just shot Fight Club. So there's a debate as to what is the better route to go. And I can't really answer that. But for me, you know, I, I, it was better for me to watch people on a huge scale overcome obstacles or solve problems and the solutions that they used as opposed to stumbling through it myself. But everybody's different. So, you know, some people would rather get their hands dirty right away and then discover. I wanted to see it and, and watch it. And in the process, you know, I got to work alongside my father. We did uh, quite a few movies, quite a, quite a bit of music videos, many, many commercials, and some rock and roll films. And so it was uh, such a great career. And then once my father retired, I went right into shooting or assisting for a, a cinematographer named Sven Nyquist. Mm-hmm. Sven. Yep. Lightweight. <laughs> Lightweight, yeah. Two, two, two Oscars and uh, did 26 Bergman movies. Yeah. And when, I, when I met him, he was 68. And my father was forced to kind of go into retirement from, from suffering from Parkinson's disease. Oh. So I had, you know, throughout my career as an assistant with him and then as an operator for him, had really tried to protect him creatively through the process and, and get around the physical condition that he was uh, dealing with. And so when, I, when Sven asked me to uh, join his crew, it was within the first week that he was letting me read light for him. You know, I'd oh, always wow. got up and read the light for my dad, you know, just because it was physically harder for him and learned enormous amount. And I did the <laughs> first week on a movie called Chaplin that Sir Richard Attenborough directed. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, you know, I had all these guys that had been around Sven for 25 years looking at me like, what is this kid doing? And they, they weren't quite real happy with me, but by the end of the first week, they realized that I, I had a zero ego. It's not about that. I'm about protecting the guy. Mm-hmm. And I was protecting Sven. And uh, long story short, in working with both my father and Sven, 
and them allowing me a much broader role in, 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 in the creative process, I became a cameraman without knowing it, you know, by virtue of my job and then absorbed all this knowledge and it had the responsibilities, but they were the ones sitting in the chair. So by the time I started shooting, it was secondhand for me because I had been doing it all along. So after you, you, you know, so you started working in the camera department and kind of working your way up, were you shooting your own stuff? Because like, I've been trying to track down a, a, a clear accounting of all your music video work and where it started and stuff like that. And, you know, y- you shot some of, you know, the most amazing music videos I've ever seen. My personal favorite being the Nine Inch Nails Perfect Drug. I love that video. But I was trying to, to kind of trace back, you know, like where your relationship started with people like David Fincher and Mark Romanek. Like, were you shooting your own stuff during that period of time while you were working on on bigger stuff? Or were you focusing on just uh, going up through the hierarchy of the camera department? Uh, well, it's a combination of both, because actually my dad and I had done several projects with with David. I think we started off with some commercials and then uh, some really progressive AT&T commercials that kind of uh, projected the future and, and were accurate. You know, we had like drive through toll booths with no with no personnel and iPads on the beach. And this was in the 90s. I remember that. Those yeah. Spots. They were really good and, and groundbreaking. And actually, like, I think there was a 20-year reunion and it was all written up in, I mean, anniversary of those spots. And it was all written up in the in the Times, uh, New York Times, about how accurate and progressive they were. And so th- those were fun. Uh, and I, the very first job was uh, a Madonna video called Oh Father, shot in black and white. It's a stunning video. It was our first job with David. And uh, when the video was over, a week out, I got a call from Fincher going, um, can you meet me at Panavision? I want to do a couple inserts on Madonna. And I'm like, oh, sure. Okay. And he goes, bring your meters. And I'm like, <laughs> why would I do that? Like, what for? And uh, I got to Panavision and we set up a little room and he comes in and he goes, this is the shot. Light it like your dad would. I'll be back in an hour. So your dad shot the video and you were operating on that? Yeah. Uh, no, I was a camera assistant on it. Oh, wow. Okay. Focus puller. And so I did, and we shot inserts and we shot uh, Madonna's mouth sewed shut and no jokes aside and, and, uh, <laughs> and pearls dropping in slow motion and a few things and they all made the video. And so that gave David the, you know, kind of introduced us on a different level than just me being a focus puller or part of the crew. Then we went on to do the AT&T spots that I had mentioned. And there was a sequence that took place with an iPad on a, a beach. And David didn't want to shoot in California. He wanted it to be a tropical place because it had much more weight onto the, uh, to the freedom that these wireless devices will provide for us in the future. So we went to St. John's Island in the Caribbean. And it, because it was out of his pocket, he only took the smallest crew as he could. And so he took me and himself and the cast and his producer. And so I shot it for him on the beach there. Uh, I was the DP down there for that part of that spot. So we kind of had been building this relationship. And then my father started uh, Aliens 3 with David. You know, at that point, he was the third director uh, that was on that project. And by now you have, uh, you know, 14 producers because it's the third one. And it was being shot uh, at Pinewood in London. And extremely cold winter. Uh, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bond stage, but it's this kind of, um, looks like an airplane hangar. It's all 
uh, corrugated steel and then yeah, yeah. and concrete, and it's actually colder inside than it is outside. All that bean is just like that cold and Parkinson's. And so the studio didn't want David to bring anybody from LA. He wanted it to be an all British crew. And it, it became an issue. And there was a concern that as the scale of the movie got grander, my dad's uh, illness would stop him from being able to finish it. And so David came at one point and goes, look, this is just going to be a fist fight the whole time. I'd rather them not have one of my friends to beat up on the way. I think it's better that you guys go and I will just fight it out myself. And it turned out to be quite a big fight. And so that night, uh, I, had, I called Phil Juwanu, who we had worked with before on State of Grace. And he was about to start a film called Final Analysis. And that very day had decided to let the DP go because they had uh, miscommunications during makeup tests. And oh. uh, so we actually flew back to LA and started that movie. So long story short, I had been working with David off and on for a while in different capacities. And then uh, he asked me to shoot second unit on seven and, and operate B camera. And then again on the game, uh, second unit and B camera. And then, uh, and then I got a call for fight club and I assumed it was to go meet him to talk about second unit and, operating and he said go home read this script and tell me if you're interested in shooting it obviously i really didn't need to read it it could have been a blank piece of paper and i would have said yes i'm interested in in doing it but uh i went i kind of you know kept everything in check and like okay I'll, I'll go read it and see what happens but you know he presented it to me in a way that he goes uh this will probably be the best script i get to direct it'll probably be the best movie brad gets to act in and it probably won't make a lot of money, but it will, de it will define the 90s, the way that Blade Runner kind of imprinted that decade. Let us have one that has that same kind of impact. And so that was the goal and that was the sales pitch, you know, uh, but a year and a half into it and, and all the effort, you know, of course you want it to make money because ultimately that's one of the biggest criteria in deciding the success, success of something is, you know, how much money does it make at the box? Yeah, yeah. Well, you sold me two tickets because I went and saw it twice in the theater. But uh, <laughs> Well, uh, you're, you're, you're unique in a film buff, but it's <laughs> like it wasn't well-received when it first came out. And yeah. I think a lot of that was kind of mismarketing. And, you know, Blade Runner was not well-received either when it first came out because, yeah. again, it was kind of mismarketed. Everybody thought they were going to get another version of a Star Wars movie, and it wasn't that at all. It was this kind of thought-provoking much deeper kind of experience about life and humanity and, and what is what is the difference between that and whether you're an android or not. And for ours, it was, you know, people got sidetracked by the fighting in Fight Club, which was just a metaphor to get you to this next place. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Columbine had just happened and the studio was really not wanting to promote the fighting part of it. So we created all these spots that we shot during the making of the movie that were really ironic and irreverent and funny. And they killed it all. And the first kind of commercials that you saw looked like boxing films yeah yeah and then they kind of went right against what they were worried about and, and you know i know my parents they said you know had you not shot it we probably wouldn't have gone to see it because we thought it was just about fighting <laughs> so you know it wasn't shortly after that that fincher like won't do a picture now unless he also controls the marketing of it that's fair now 
I've heard stories about Fincher as as have we all about uh, a meticulousness, lots of takes. Is is there anything in there that you can confirm or dispel? Like I heard on social network that there was like a ridiculous number of takes on the first scene. And then I heard an interview with him where he's like, look, we did like 10 on each angle and that's 30 takes. What do you want from me? And it wasn't. It, it, um, so I'm just kind of curious because I, I do think that all his films have such a meticulous attention to detail. And I assume that that ripples through your department as well. A hundred percent. Yeah. He's a perfectionist and he wants all of us to bring the best that we can to the, to, to the film. And, and ultimately with him, it's all about what actually makes it up onto the screen. Um, he has so much integrity and passion for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a little bit unfair, the, the multiple take things, cause it's changed on every movie we've done. Fight Club, uh, there was a lot of takes, but, but one of the reasons was, you know, there was, there's a lot of small short scenes in that movie and there's a particular cadence that David had in his head to make it work. And, you know, inadvertently or vertently, there was performances that didn't kind of get that or there was creative kind of input that altered that cadence. And so we would do it until he got a version of it that he thought fit. And sometimes that would mean going through all the different incarnations and all the other contributions that each cast member was bringing to it until it all kind of fit into the tempo that he wanted. And so that was, that was why we would do as many takes as we did. Sometimes people confuse takes with coverage too. You know, social network, I, I think there was a few more takes in, in that opening sequence, but that opening sequence is such a, it, that, that sets up the entire movie. You know, from the second you, you see the two people sitting there and the noise is so high that everybody in the audience sits forward in their chairs to better listen to what they're talking. And then this dialogue starts this, this shotgun back and forth to each other that never stops the whole movie. And so that scene was really, really imperative in kind of telling everybody what to expect, what kind of ride this next hour and a half or two hours is going to be. Yeah. And, and it's complicated in that it was eight pages of dialogue and it's going to be, it leads off the movie and, and it's improv, it's not improv, but it's improv in the way that it fits together the words because in Aaron Sorkin's scripts, people tend to talk over one another and it's such a back and forth kind of slugfest that we had to cover it and we had to do it in a way where you could match cut sequences and, and whether or not the, the talent was delivering exact lines you wanted it to be seamless to cut together. So we started off with a, with two profile shots of the couple, a wider and a tighter. And then we went in to, and did coverage of them each at the same time. So cross coverage, you know, which is not usually something that's ideal mm-hmm. uh, photographically because it means you're compromising something on one side or the other. But because you have to, it's imperative to have the, ma- the dialogue match that we were kind of pushed into that. And so we did that each 10 times and then got tighter 10 times. So yeah, we might've done it each time, but in the end, I think we did like 60 or 80 passes of the whole thing, but there was different takes and different coverage. So yeah, it wasn't 80 takes of one shot. Exactly. And it's a dialogue scene and it's, you know, it's, it's Sorkin dialogue. I, I mean, uh, exactly what you're saying. I think sometimes people act like it's excessive what's going on when really it's just, you know, kind of try, trying to get it right rehearsal 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 and then you know you shoot it till you get it the way you want it and if it is 
you know, 10 takes. That's not a uh, Stanley Kubrick number of takes to get the thing exactly not, the way you not want Not at it. all. And it's, it's a funny thing because everybody asked me about it, you know. And by the time, uh, like, say, did Gone Girl, we were doing, you know, 12, 14 takes. But he's very didactic when he analyzes a, a performance. And he gets each, he kind of divides them into thirds. And he wants to get a variety, uh, what he perceives to be his variety and inflection of each beginning, middle, and end of that scene. And so we'll do that until he gets it. We may do the whole thing, but he may be waiting for you know a word or a line at the end to get that. And once all those boxes are checked, we move on to the next thing. Now we may cover it. You know, we may have sixteen setups for that scene, but we won't do more than ten or fifteen takes. Now, uh, and I'm not going to spend all day talking about Fight Club because you have so much other work I want to discuss, but I just want to talk about like that movie feels like a, a jigsaw puzzle that is designed to fit all exactly the way that it fits together. It's so visual and so specific and everything feels so intentional. Did you guys do extensive storyboarding or like what was the preparation for that film like? Yeah, that film more than later films was storyboarded a lot because there was like a lot of confusing scenes and a lot of things that you didn't want to get caught with time changes yeah. and flashbacks. And we were pushing technology. So you had to allow everybody an opportunity to understand what all the pieces were that you need for those particular shots because they were so new. And so there was a, we were embracing previs, which was just coming out, you know, like, or had gone to one next level. It was still pretty rudimentary, but we used previs to also kind of elaborate some of the complicated scenes. And when I say complicated, like, for example, the scene where Brad and Ed are driving in the car and they end up crashing, he says, he's, Brad tells them just to let go. And yeah. They, crash amazing scene i think there might have been 10 locations in that sequence including the car sliding down an embankment on stage close-ups and a half car that we were able to rotate so we could get the camera and spin and let the actors you know like a dryer tumble in the car rear screen projection stuff on stage uh, of them driving the uh, the location where the car crashed plate shots that we shot down by the airport for the driving shots, inserts of roads and the cones being hit. I think we crashed three cars, two in the one location, the third somewhere else, multiple impacts. It just was like seven, 10 days of shooting to put that scene together. Wow. And you have to know how to break out everyone's contributions to that to make it work seamlessly. And, all, and everything from prop and wardrobe and hair and makeup to visual effects, to physical effects, to locations, to everything. And so that's where the previs plays in and helps the most. And at minimum, storyboards. But as, as we've evolved, you know, it, it only comes useful now when you're doing something, again, that has multiple layers. For example, in Dragon Tattoo, fewer storyboards, fewer previs, even though previs is so easy now. But we needed to see previs for the car crash where Selen's chasing Elizabeth on the motorcycle across the bridge and then rolls the car in front of the gas station and it blows up, catches on fire and blows up, right? And yeah. so that, that had an enormous amount of layers and contributions from different effects houses and people doing fire and people doing glass and real car versus CG car versus the fire, all the different elements that you have to put into that. And so that's something where a group of people that are all contributing to it can watch and then get a much clearer understanding of what the end goal is. Amazing. Amazing. Well, and, and so for people listening to this who aren't familiar with Previs, it's basically 
pre-visualizing a, a scene with video game level graphics usually. And But back when you were doing Fight Club, what were the quality of the graphics that you guys had for previs? It was a black and white stick figures kind of, you know, mm-hmm. basically with some 2D elements of background and sc- scope and scale and things. You know, it was such a novel tool at the time and it took a long time and it took a lot of things but you were able to for example uh when when ed gets off the plane and realizes that his apartment's blown up and then walks to a pay booth and takes out the card that tyler had given him on the airplane we needed to know how far can we go with the dolly track to make the like 270 move around it without coming back in to seeing the track at the other end and the elevation drop and Previs was allowed to kind of give us all those dimensions and oh, wow. work it out flawlessly. So those are those were kind of some of the things. I know that David on, this is just an antidote story, when doing Panic Room, he had Prevised every shot in that movie. And part of the reasons were in building sets and building camera moves to add more suspense. For example, some of the walls might have had curves to them. So when you looked around, you would have to look a little further to see and it was more mysterious. or <laughs> banisters that would be able to pull out as the camera slid up and went up to track something, but then would be put back later so you can make a a second pass. And he wanted very controlled, methodical moves in that movie. And uh, so an enormous amount of labor, previs the whole movie, built sets per the talent, per and the camera moves all pre-designed for that, and then ends up uh, replacing... Jodie Foster became the new lead, but it started off Nicole Kidman. Nicole's oh, like Nicole's six inches taller than Jody. Oh no. So, so that more or less nullified all the previs. Oh no. Oh. You know, which is just so much work at that. Now, now it would be a simple thing, a couple of keystrokes and you could probably <laughs> change, change everything, but it was a much harder thing then. And so, uh, you know, I think movies after that, there was less previs, but, uh, so yeah, that's what we do. Do you like working with extensive previs like that or or do you prefer to like, you know, kind of feel through it a little bit more on your own? It depends on what it is. You know, if if it, it effects have gotten much easier too, so that so things can be a lot a lot more forgiving now than it used to be. Then there was so many specifics and things took too long so long to fix and the the computing power was slower and the graphics weren't as good. Now it's gotten a lot easier. So I think I think it's always a good idea to see what the goal is, but I think it's much better to kind of not be so locked in to organically feel it out as much as possible to give it some kind of humanity when mm-hmm. you get out there. And of course, and I say that, but that depends on the movie you're doing. You know, if you're doing something like a Star Wars thing, then maybe you have more leeway to be in a kind of a more controlled situation. But if you're doing a really heartfelt story, then you want to still kind of not lose that connection. Yeah, yeah. So uh, while you were working on, uh, was it Fight Club, you met Mark Romanek? Uh, I had met him before that. We, I, oh, yeah, that's right, because perfect, the perfect drug was like 1995 or something, I think. Or 95, 96, something like that. Yeah, I had met, I think I had met Mark first when he came to visit like one of the commercials or one of the music videos that David and, we, and, and my dad were doing, mm-hmm. maybe even the Oh Father video. I had met him. I had not worked with him, but I was a fan of the music videos that he had oh, done man. at that Some point, of the best. you know, and he was killing it. So his his style is almost, especially in the music video realm and especially in the 90s, was kind of painterly. You know, I mean, like the perfect drug to me almost looks like it reminds me of this weird uh, surrealist painter I'm a fan of named Odd Nerdrum. But it's like really, really beautiful. How do you tackle 
how do you tackle kind of creating imagery? I, I, I feel like I look at it and I'm like, I wouldn't know how to stage that and light that if I had to do it today. Like there's something so unique about it. There's something alchemical about it. What is the method by which you, you know, you work uh, to come up with visuals that are so striking? Well, like, for example, that music video, Mark had had some ideas about where he wanted to put Trent and what the general story was going to be. And then we talked about looks and, and researched some images that were reflective of some of the tonality we wanted. And then he kind of, you know, he did a funny thing. He goes, I, I want this to be the darkest video on MTV. <laughs> I want you to go for it. It's a dark subject matter. It's got dark storylines. It's got overriding kind of messages and uh, make it beautiful. And so we discovered it along the way. You know, we, uh, we went in with that without being the goal and the knowledge. And then Tom Foden had designed all the sets. And so we saw set sketches ahead of time. Was it connected in some way to the David Lynch movie, Lost Highway? Was it used in promotion or was it in the movie? It was actually. Yeah, there was a it, it's in the track. Yeah. So was there any kind of crossover oversight from the studio that made that film or David Lynch or was it just, you know, go go make your thing? Yeah, we were standalone on the on the video, but I do know it was released on the track. It just seems like that was a period of time where music videos felt like they could be kind of a proof of concept art pieces in a way that they tend to not be now unless you're making a video for OK Go or something where, where like those things are wild and experimental. But I feel like it was it was a period. And we've talked to other people like Sal Totino and, and Larry Fong, who who worked in that period of music videos. But like, what was it like? Did it did it was was it kind of like a one upmanship of uh, of experimentalism in, in all the videos that people were making? It was. Yeah, the bar was pretty high. Everybody, all of our contemporaries were all doing music videos. There was this huge crossover because people were, talent was just being discovered left and right. And then people were maturing like Fincher. All this enormous talent came out of, out of those. Each video that came out from, you couldn't wait to see and to see what they were doing and what boundaries had been pushed and whose ideas, like what, what is the freshest, newest, hippest ideas to be had. And then, and then deliver them, you know, groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. Like you would see stuff like, I think I saw bullet time for the first time ever in a music video before it was in the matrix. You'd see things like tilt and shift lenses suddenly gaining popularity and, and, you know, some of, some of those kinds of things. It's just such an interesting time. And I think, I mean, like still music videos are being made and still some amazing music videos are being made, but I feel like they're not, uh, because we don't really have an MTV thing kind of pushing them on us all the time. We have to seek them out as viewers, I feel like there's, it, it, I don't know. I, I feel like it's just not as in, in your face all the time, even though again, amazing work is still being done in that world. It is, but I, I for me at least, like when the Napster thing happened, it kind of killed the, it, it took some of the impetus out of music videos and, and they couldn't monetize the music industry for a couple of years. And so yeah. that killed music videos. And until recently, a few years ago, when of course they figured it out and kids started buying videos on, on iTunes and different things, that, then people started reinvesting into the, the videos. And I feel like there's a resurgence coming. I, I doubt it'll ever get to the heyday that it was and the amount of money yeah. they were spending on those. But you do get artists now and then, you know, I still shoot one or two music videos a year and I wait to do, you know, I, I get to choose of course. So I wait to do something that has enough resources or, and has a, enough, a song and talent enough to, to merit. But um, I still think it's such a great medium to, to shoot in and, and it's fun to be around the music and the talent and 
and uh, and you still can make things different. I did uh, a Maroon 5 video last year. It was just a single take video that's just really beautiful. Mm. Um, you know, and so they come along. So I believe it was after Fight Club, your next uh, project was for Mark Romanek, the uh, the movie One Hour Photo, correct, with uh, Robin Williams? Uh, that's right. And so uh, obviously you hadn't shot the first couple of Fincher movies, but that I believe is Mark Romanek's first feature. That was his first long form thing because he was mostly known for commercials and, and music videos. What was it like taking somebody who who was such a master of one art form and kind of bringing them into in, into some into a feature into a longer form thing? And and like, what were some of the things, kind of the lessons that you learn along the way working with someone who's used to working in short form and then moving into longer form? Well, I think I think. Mark's a, a director, he's a filmmaker, so it really yeah. didn't matter. I mean, and all his music videos had storylines that were very clever and woven through them. So he, he was always a storyteller and, and uh, he's very well studied. So the transition was pretty easy for him. I loved the idea of it because I knew that he would bring sensibilities aesthetically that he carries throughout all the music videos. So I knew I would have a fair shot, even though it was a kind of a smaller budget movie, to, to bring something visually to the screen that, that would represent me and us and mm -hmm. that we could be proud of. You know, that's always a risk you take when you do something small. You don't know where you're going to get beat up on. I think, and I know this isn't a cinematography specific thing, but one of the genius things in that movie too is casting Robin Williams, who we're used to seeing as this explosive on-screen character full of energy and make him as tamped down as I think I've ever seen him in anything. Uh, like, you know, and, and I feel like the whole movie kind of holds that energy where it's like, we know it could explode. We're waiting for it to explode, but it's like holding back, holding back, like kind of compressing us as an audience in a great way. Like, you know, and, and I think that the cinematography kind of complements that as well. For me on one hour photo, the thing that I love most about it is, there's really three worlds that this guy lives in. And I had an opportunity to kind of create those visually three worlds, you know, his store, his, his apartment, and then the family that he's obsessed with. And to visually, your cinematography always wants to support the story, but to be able to define three worlds that the characters take place in even yeah. has more weight than normal when you're, when you're creating scenes. And so that was a really fun part of that film. How did you go about uh, kind of differentiating those three worlds? Well, it was a challenge uh, in the store itself because Mark had this idea of, of it being this bright and clinical place. And I was struggling with like, how do you, how do I do that and still kind of bring some of the sensibilities that I, that I like? And what we ended up doing is creating, we made our own light fixtures in the store, replaced them all. Actually, we bought, we, we bought from the salvage company and made, made our own. And I bounced light off the ceiling to create this really soft light. So it wasn't direct overhead top light. It was soft ambient light, which played into the whole idea that, you know, this was his safe haven and ethereal light from on top is what lights the store. And it, it brought a softness and a change to it and didn't just become this clinical, sterile environment, even though he himself is kind of that person. And so that was wonderful. I, I tell you what was really kind of, personally challenging to overcome is like the first 13, 14 days of shooting on that film, maybe 17 days, we're all in the store. And so every day at dailies, you know, we're still shot, we shot on film and you go watch dailies afterwards and to watch 17 days in a row of this top lit white store <laughs> was just like, I was losing my mind going trying to keep perspective on where, on, 
on how it's going to balance out. And that's one of the things you do as a, as a cinematographer is you want to balance out the film. You can't have everything be pitch black and you can't have everything be bright. You want to find this language and this balance between it to keep an audience engaged and to watch one, one, one location 17 days in a row, not being able to kind of focus on all the dark that's coming that, that then balances out the entire film was challenging. Yeah, but like once you started seeing the darker stuff, did it, did it? Oh yeah, then I was like, oh, this is awesome because now I can, <laughs> it, you know, it's just like it made me like even want to push boundaries more to kind of like do the opposite, you know, really push uh, the two ends of it. So it was good. It took a little distrusting myself that that in fact will happen eventually as we keep shooting. And uh, you, you're uh, still working. I mean, obviously you've worked a bunch with Fincher and you're also working currently with Mark Romanek. You have a new, uh, a new series for Amazon Prime called Tales from the Loop. Um, how did that come about? Mark got his hands on this, on the, you know, uh, Nathaniel Halperin is the writer, showrunner, and uh, he reached out to Mark to uh, collaborate on the series, to EP it and to direct the first episode. And so he's, gave me a call. He said it was the first person he thought of, would I be interested in doing it? And I, had, I hadn't I had shot for TV yet, you know, music videos and commercials aside. And all of Fincher's television projects, he kind of, he, he refrained from having his crew, his core group uh, work on those because he always imagined doing pictures in between the series runs. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be, you know, in Baltimore doing uh, House of Cards or to be in Pittsburgh doing Mindhunter, uh, for you know, all, throughout the, the the entire series, although he's not even you know he's only directing the one or two of each each of those seasons, uh, was not what he wanted to do. So I had been waiting to the right project to come along because it's imminent. Like it's you know it's, it's such a fabulous time to be shooting for television. There's so much beautiful stuff. It's just yeah. like. You know, it's it's as good as it's, it, the production quality is as good as anything you can see, and so I wanted to do it, and so this seemed like the right time to go back uh, with, with someone whose aesthetics I love, whose relationship we've years of, and and I admire all of his work, and so when he called, I was like, absolutely, let's go do that. Now, I, I always wonder uh, with uh, people who we talk to who shoot television, especially those who like shoot pilots, and then a lot of it gets handed off to other people. Did you shoot beyond beyond the pilot, or did you just you shoot? Know, the pilot? I just shot the pilot. So do you work with the other DPs who, who pick up the mantle of it to kind of quality control what it's going to look like, or how, how does that work? Well, it, it's a delicate thing in that you don't want to step on other people's toes. And in, in, a, in a lot of senses, that's what the showrunner and the producers are all about, is maintaining that continuity once different people come and go, because there's many directors, as you know, come and shoot it. I think they had eight, eight episodes and they had eight directors. So there has to be someone controlling the continuity. But it was really interesting for me because it's the first time in my life that I would come back, like I'd walk onto set to, to check something, light something, compose something, go back to look on my, my color correct monitor and there would be two cinematographers sitting behind me. <laughs> and I just kind of look back and go, wow, this is interesting. And, you know, they were great and talented guys, but they were just absorbing as much as they could to get. But they weren't like, uh, hey, man, can you pan a little bit? To the- it might be more interesting if you pan to the left. No, there wasn't a lot of suggestions. Uh, <laughs> I think they gave me more respect than I probably deserved, but they, they were just like, uh, let's see what you're doing. And, and uh, you know, they were very respectful. And so 
uh, you want they wanted to watch and and kind of see w what we were doing and why we were doing it and and uh, the motivation for a lot of things so that they could carry them on into their episode. When you're doing television, like you know, like you were talking about with a one hour photo and how you're trying to balance everything out and make sure that you know, like you've got some light, you've got some dark. You know, and, and when you're making a feature, you're kind of telling one complete story that's one unit. But when you're setting up something like Tales from the Loop, it's, you know, an ongoing series. How how different is that for you, you know, when, when you're not really completing the arc, you're kind of leaving it open-ended visually? Is, is there... Is, does that go through your head or are you just looking at the one episode like it's a like it's a one-off movie no you, can, you can't really do that you don't want to create something in the first episode that's not that's not repeatable you mm -hmm. don't want to box everybody in i mean if that was the assignment that to create your own and each one will be a standalone show and you don't have to worry about it but that wasn't the goal the goal was to yeah. create a visual language that carries through tales of the loop this is how we're telling these stories this is what the the camera movements are going to be and this is the kind of quality of light and, and then put that in motion and hope that they all uh you know stay on board and don't deviate too much from it because i think that we we i think it's pretty special it's a very different it's a different you know they, we were we were inspired by uh, a lot of swedish filmmakers and we were inspired by bergman and uh, kalowski and tykowski and the kind of camera movement and pace of the, of those movies of mm -hmm. films and it, it's 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 a it's a wonderful thing because there was a there was a insecurity about how well this would be accepted in, in kind of today's world of fast-paced action shows and this is very methodical and melancholy in in the approach but it's but it's a cerebral show and it and there's some sci-fi going on so you have to think about it and in the end we got lucky uh, that pe we have a captive audience <laughs> right now, more so, more so than anybody. And I, every review I've read has said this is a, a breath of fresh air. And so I think it's like it really was a bold choice, bold choices, but it paid off. Well, and you do read reviews. Some people are like, I'm not going to read any reviews. I um, read reviews when people send them to me and I, they uh -huh. keep. I, I my crew and guys and everybody can, agent keeps sending me things and then I look at them, but I don't seek it out. Well, I feel like we've taken up uh, enough of your time here. Uh, before we go, is there any place online people can see your work? No, I don't. I don't really have. A, I think that there's uh, someone created a Facebook fan page, which I don't know really nice. what's on it. Yeah, it's great. I don't know what's on it. And then uh, my, I, I have my reels on my agent's website, which is uh, DDA Talent, Gatner Despoto Talent. And you can find me along with their whole roster. And it shows all, all the films and commercials and music videos and different things. So it's a good source. Well, probably the best way that our, uh, our listeners can support you right now is go to Prime Video and watch uh, Tales from the Loop. There you go. Uh, you know, see, see your newest work. So thank you very much for, uh, for doing this. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. All right, guys. Stay safe. Cheers. Right. All right. So that was Jeff Cronenwith. He and I spoke after the recording about possibly coming back on and doing a more in-depth deep dive onto, into some of his uh, other experiences with David Fincher because we unfortunately didn't get to go into amazing depth on things like Gone Girl and the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. You're fired, on on. Ben. Forget it. Just fired. 
fired. <laughs> I wanted <laughs> you had, to. I ran out of time. You had one thing to do, and it was to talk I about ran that out of time. Now. And I did. I got a lot of information about Fight Club. Yes. I, it, I, it, anyway, it was, okay, it was a good interview. It really was. It was. Yes. No. Thank you very much, Jeff. And uh, hopefully, we'll have you back on. So, Ilya, you know what time it is now? Oh God, is it? Is it my favorite time? It's bill paying time. Oh, yes. Bill paying time. All right. Hey, well, we have to thank our wonderful sponsor, Aperture, who makes fantastic high quality LED lighting equipment. Uh, they've got something new that's about to start shipping called the 300X. The 300, the 300X. Yeah, it's kind of like the 300D, kind of like the 300D2, kind of like the 120D2 in that it's a, it's a light. It's a, what they call a COB, a chip on board. It's a LED mm-hmm. light. It looks about the same as the other, but that X uh, instead of D means that it can be either tungsten or daylight and then you oh. can, and you can kind of ramp it in between and you have a little bit of variation in output. So is it, yeah. is it a bicolor? It's bicolor. Yeah. So you can, nice. have, so you can have the two different flavors of white that are most commonly used for production. You can have the tungsten white, which is uh, what they call a 3200 Kelvin temperature. And then you can have the daylight, which is about 5600 Kelvin temperature and I'm not trying to get too technical here, but yes, if you need it to match the light that comes from the sun, you can, if you need it to match the light that comes from your incandescent bulb, it can. So, so that's, what's really cool. Or, or more likely the light that matches the led bulb that replaced your incandescent bulb. Possibly. Possibly that's true. And it's compatible <laughs> with all the same uh, accessories that you have for the other uh, the other aperture lights of similar ilk, like the 300D2 and the 120D and all that stuff. It can use their lanterns and soft boxes and you name it. It's uh, going to be slightly less powerful than uh, the D2. And uh, the power sounds like it's going to shift a little bit as you go to one uh, color temperature extreme or the other. You'll get a little more mm-hmm. brightness in the middle. But uh, but yeah, it's a, it's going to be an interesting addition to the 300D family. A lot of people these days are just going daylight for everything, but this will add an extra uh, option for you if you want to be able to have a more incandescent bulb color of white. I find too yeah. that like Sometimes if you're going all daylight, but you want to warm up the skin tones just a hair. Mm, yeah. Having the ability to just take your light a little warmer. Well, you, you can do that with this crazy piece of uh, plastic material called a gel that people will use to discuss. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's really high tech, very modern stuff. No, it's the, it's the old traditional way. Someone cut a little piece of orange, uh, the plastic material, put it in front of the, I can do that, yeah. but it's, but I can do it fancier if I have an app on my phone and just turn and it I can just yeah. dial it in on my phone. <laughs> yes, that's true too. Well, anyway, Aperture's new light 300, 300 X will uh, give you this capability, which is pretty cool. Excellent. Yeah. And it's going to be, uh, or by the time you hear this, it'll be for order and sale, uh, you know, through high red cameras of course sweetness and now short ends all right Ilya, it is that time for our short ends your pet obsession of the week and uh both of us have uh surprisingly covid19 uh involved uh pet obsessions this week oh uh, yeah um yours is much sadder than mine all right i i, be- I better go first then because uh I, I don't want to leave people on, on the, the real the real downer but um uh I guess my my obsession this week is Alan Davio. Alan Davio, it's so sad. Uh, yes, uh, ASC, uh, fantastic cinematographer who is probably best known for uh, movies like ET and um, Empire of the Sun and uh, five Academy Award nominations. I mean, a lot uh, of Spielberg stuff. Lot, he shot Spielberg's short film Amblin, of course, where Amblin 
comes from the, the name Amblin comes from that short film. So, uh, he, uh, and you know, he's actually, I, I've met or I had met Alan Davio a, a number of times over the years, just, uh, traveling in the same circles and, uh, such a incredibly nice man, incredibly generous and, and oh, so talented. He actually then is the first person I ever met who's, who's died from COVID-19 and that's, it's, in, it's incredibly sad. He's a, it's a, it's a huge loss. Um, that's a huge loss for us all in the industry. Yeah I, mean, yeah, he, yeah. I mean, he was, he was one of the giants. He was one of the giants of cinematography and somebody who we had often talked about, like, you know, maybe one day we can get him on the show. Yes. I, I'm, I'm it, sure he, I'm sure he, he would have too, but, um, yeah, uh, Alan, uh, it will, will be sorely missed. Uh, his, uh, fantastic body of work lives on. And, um, if you go to his IMDB, you'll see, uh, the, the wide assortment of, of, uh, yeah. of, of productions that he was involved in, including some in- incredible classics like Empire of the Sun too. If you, if you're only going to pick one, uh, I think you should pick that, that from 1987. That's a, a I wonderful agree. film to, to watch. You and I don't ever agree on, on movies, but I think Empire of the Sun is actually one of the best Spielberg movies ever made. Yeah. Uh, and, and it looks amazing. And it's one of Davio's most beautifully shot films. And, you know, you can make the case that many of the other things that he shot to are, are equally beautiful, but Empire of the Sun, something about it has an, an incredible resonance and it's, it's absolutely worth, worth watching. So it's worth watching just because it stars a young Christian Bale. Yeah. Very young Christian Bale. Yeah. And, and <laughs> a great, and a great performance. Um, all right, Ben. So, uh, so what is your, uh, what's your short end this week? Uh, mine also deals with an old timer. In this case, it is uh, Roger Corman. Oh and, yes. My uh, former employer it, for a short period of time. <laughs> Your former employer and uh, Mike McKenzie, yeah, we, we've and a bunch of other people, yeah, thousands. You know, we've of interviewed other. A, f- a few DPs who got their start with Roger Corman, notably Mike Mickens, yeah, oh, and uh, Ron Howard. Well, yeah, uh, but, well, but we haven't interviewed. No, well, no, no. Well, okay, so true. Yeah, we we didn't interview him, but uh, no, and and many other in- incredible filmmakers, yeah, Francis I mean, Ford Coppola, huge yeah. huge DPs. We're about to interview a DP this week who got his start with Roger Corman as well. But you know, he brilliant filmmaker launched Jack Nicholson's career, Martin Scorsese, uh, Jim Cameron, Francis Ford Coppola, Joe Dante. Like, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So Roger Corman on on his Instagram, I believe, is doing the the first and last Corman Quarantine Film Festival. Uh, so on it, it says uh, submit in, uh, any social media channel by tagging at Roger Corman and hashtag Corman Challenge. Guidelines. The short must be filmed inside your home or your, in your backyard. The short must be under two minutes long and it must be filmed on a cell phone. Oh, man. Deadline April 30th at midnight. And he's going to have awards. So basically, Roger Corman is—I I don't know that—I don't know that this qualifies as making lemonade out of lemons, but he's taking advantage of the fact that there's a lot of pent-up creative energy going on in the world where people can't leave their house, and saying, "Go make a movie on your cell phone and send it to me." So now's your big chance to get Roger Corman to check your stuff out. Are you going to enter this uh, this festival? You got a few people in your house. You could you could possibly put them to work. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I can get Madden to operate the camera. These two, it might not really work out that well. I was going to say, uh, Madden is uh, Ben's very young son, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's not even two yet. It might end um, up in his mouth, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he might just chuck it at my head. That's usually what he does. He just chucks stuff at my face. So uh, I do not know if I will do this because I don't know when I would have the time to do it, but uh, maybe I will. I don't know. We'll check it out. I think it's a really cool idea, though. And, you know, Roger Corman is someone who has been an industry fixture since what, the 1950s? Mm. Yeah. Something you know, that's like, when, yeah, when it, he was making uh, like those Vincent Price movies was maybe the early 60s. 
you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, sort of the uh, era of uh, Little Shop of Horrors. He's just been around forever. I met him once years ago because I had done projection design for a theater project called SciFest. Mm. And they had a science fiction award that they did sometime later. And Roger Corman was there. And our producer on, on the play uh, on the plays said, do you want to meet Roger Corman? And I was like, yes, I want to meet Roger Corman. And she took me into the back and he was extremely gracious and nice. And I, uh, I don't usually get starstruck, but I was pretty starstruck meeting Roger Corman. Hmm. All right. I don't think I ever met him in person. Never once. So even though I, I worked at uh, Concord New Horizons and worked for other people who are associated with Concord New Horizons and yeah, never, no, don't think I ever met the guy. I think he was, he was very classy. He was, yeah. he was interested, you know, he, I mean, I didn't talk to him for very long, but he was very interested. Uh, one of the more interesting things I've seen in LA in a long time too, was a few years ago, I went to a reading of a script and I forget what the script is called. Maybe we can find out what it was called, but uh, Joe Dante was going to direct, he, he was directing the stage reading, but it was a movie I guess he wanted it to do. And it was about Roger Corman making the movie, the trip, which uh, starred Peter Fonda That's and it was right. about an acid trip. Yeah, and it's yeah. a hilarious piece of uh, druggy kitsch from the late 60s. And and it was basically about Roger Corman, who apparently is like buttoned down straight as an arrow, doesn't do any drugs at all, like trying to understand hippie culture. And uh, that movie definitely shows that. And he, uh, I believe, directed the movie. Hmm. So Interesting. All right. Super psychedelic weirdness. Well, uh, I, maybe some of our listeners will get inspired and submit. Does it say at all what the, uh, the, the prize is for this contest? Is there, is there a prize? I'm guessing the prize is just the pride that you'll feel in your heart for having impressed Roger Corman. Fantastic. And that man has seen it all. <laughs> he certainly has. <laughs> uh, all right, Ben. So uh, I think that just about does it for uh, this episode here. Uh, where can people find you? Look for me at benrockonline.com. You can find all of my socials there, my social medias and uh, Twitter and Facebook. And you know what? LinkedIn. I don't care. I, I don't care if it makes me square. I'm on LinkedIn. Add me on LinkedIn. I don't give a crap. I, I'm also on LinkedIn. So, hey, you know what? Uh, this week, if you want to find me, yeah, go to go to LinkedIn and find Ilya Friedman. That, that's where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> The best part about LinkedIn is if you sign up for it, you get like 75 emails from them a day. It's great. Uh, there, there was a, a joke running for a while about like uh, someone said, what's the, uh, you know, my top five ways for you to contact me. And the first one was like phone. Then it was email. Then it was tech mess- text messaging. Then it was like number four was like smoke signals. And number five was LinkedIn messenger. Can I, can I tell you a LinkedIn story though? Sure. This, this is a little a little uh, positive LinkedIn thing. Like I'd, I'd had LinkedIn for years and I wasn't using it super actively. And when we were doing the Indiegogo campaign to make season two of 20 Seconds to Live, I was like, screw it. I'm going to reach out to everybody who ever added me on LinkedIn. And you know what? We got about 10% of our haul from LinkedIn. Wow. All right. Not bad. Not too bad. Way to go, LinkedIn. It's not a bad thing that fewer people in our business use it. Anyway. Well, well let me tell uh, you, with, with a little bit of unemployment going on right now, I expect LinkedIn to get a lot, a lot of traffic. I have been getting a lot of people asking to network with me lately on LinkedIn, and I'm like, well, uh, might as well. I mean, who, who cares? So, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, okay, if you're not going to find me on LinkedIn, you can find me over at, at Hot Rod Cameras, you know, the sponsor of the show. That's that, that's what I'm doing. It's, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's a pretty cold, dark, uh, lonely place right now. We've, we've closed the showroom. You have to do, um, we're doing curbside pickup. Essentially you can pull into the parking lot and we'll wheel out your order into your car and you don't have to get out of your car, but I mean, yeah, you, you call us and we, but then they can't berate you and ask you for a t-shirt. No, but if they, if they hit me up ahead of time, 
maybe it'll be a shirt or a hat or something like that. But they have to mention that they do listen to the podcast and they, that's so what they do want. it. Yeah. Get, get yourself. I actually I'm not wearing it currently, but I've been wearing my hot rod shirt that you gave me uh, quite, quite proudly lately. Cool. I'm, I'm really glad that you're convincing your, your two year old through, uh, you know, uh, to, to shop with us. <laughs> All right. So who do we need to thank today? Uh, let's thank Alana Cody. You know, producer extraordinaire. Honestly, Alana's persistence on the Jeff Cronenworth interview uh, paid off. It was tricky to schedule just, you know, because everyone's schedule was difficult and she stayed on it. And it was, you know, one of one of our bucket list DPs to talk to. Did so you I was act- really excited. Did you talk it. about the backstory of how that all came together in your interview at all? Like on microphone? I did not. No. OK, so so here's the five second version of it. Uh, we had the interview. Then there was a scheduling conflict. Then uh, it was back on. Then there was another scheduling conflict. Then there was it was back on a third time. There was another scheduling conflict. And I think that was the fourth or fifth time that we finally were able to make the planets align to make this interview happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was nobody's fault. It's no, just, not at know, all. That, it's just like busy people. It, it was, uh, you know, but it was like this goes back before pandemic, you know, pre pandemic. Yeah. We we're trying to make no, this no, happen. No. We've been trying to get that interview going on for probably like two months. Yeah. And and uh, it seemed though like, hey, Thursday's the day. It's going to happen. Then it was like, no, it'll have to be some other time. And then it was like, oh, yeah. OK, so then it'll be two months from now. And then it was like, oh, no, what's going to happen? And then uh, so anyway, so there, there you go. It's hard to hard to pin down a guy who works as much as he does. He works a lot. That's right. He's been really, really busy. And, you know, I Great. occasionally you were you were busy or some, or I was busy or whatever it was but you know yeah. I'm, I'm glad that it uh, I'm glad it finally the planets aligned and we can all make it happen super excited to to talk to him and hopefully we can do it again yeah all right so, so let's also thank Kay's Alatrachi who created all the music that you're listening to in the entire episode I, I'm gonna give a real sarcastic thanks to Kay's thanks Kay's no Kay, thanks, Kay, Kay's Kay's <laughs> And also, uh, as always, a giant thanks to Ben Katz, who edits this and makes us not sound like morons. That's right. Ben Katz, you are killing it. Thanks for, for trimming down some of the, the fat in this episode and uh, making sure we're all, you know, neat and tidy. Cool. So we will see you at uh, in a week or less. Probably Because less. we have a bonus episode coming up. Oh, yes. But we'll see you next week for the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.